Hello. Um, I'm actually on call today, so if I have to nip out periodically just to take a couple of questions on the telephone, I do apologise. No, I really am on call. I, I'm sorry if anyone now is disappointed that um, I'm not actually naked, though. Uh, any, any naked scientist fans in? A few. Hopefully by the end we might get a few more. Uh, yes, yeah, so I present The Naked Scientist. It's a BBC radio programme. I also make Five Live Science for the Radio 5 Live network. And our programmes actually go all over the world because once they have taken to the airwaves here in Britain, we turn them into a podcast. And it's one of the most downloaded podcasts in the world. And also then those podcasts turn back into radio programmes in other countries. So we go to Australia, New Zealand and South Africa. Now, part of what we do on the radio is to have an interesting discussion. And today is all about having an interesting discussion. And we have for you three people who are examining the subject of climate change from different perspectives. Oh, sorry, did you think you were coming to advanced accounting? Oh, sorry about that. No, you got the joke. So you're not in an advanced accounting session. I presume everyone is here because you are interested in the concept of climate change and our changing world. So we're going to hear from three individuals who are examining what is happening to the climate and what we might do to mitigate some of the effects of those changes to the climate. They will each present for about 10 minutes where they're coming from and then after they have finished it's your opportunity to ask some questions. So have your thinking caps on while they are talking and if there is a complete failure to have any questions we will do what's called question or nominate and what that means is that we nominate someone to ask the first question and then the question and nominates the next person so no one can afford to go to sleep and you have to ask questions relevant to the topic you can't ask me for help on your tax return or uh, how to pay your mortgage anything like that this is about climate change let me summarize for you who is going to speak um, we have at the front here Rachel Reckin Rachel is going to kick off she originally was from the University of Wyoming she was working in the Rockies, still does, she tells me, and she's been studying ancient peoples, maybe 10,000 years ago, who had to cope themselves with climate change, and she's asking, how did they cope with environmental change? What did they do? The idea being we try and learn from the past to inform what we do in the future. Doug Crawford Brown was, until recently, until he retired, the director of the Cambridge Centre for Climate Change Mitigation Research. He has spoken in many countries at many important events and has been instrumental in telling us what we actually need to look out for in the future and how we may or may not be able to combat the threat of climate change. And Barbara Bodenhorn down here, she is a social anthropologist, and she's been doing some very interesting work on what young people think about climate change. So we'll try and get inside the minds of the next generation of people who are going to inherit this planet and all of the legacy of the problems that we have probably created. Please welcome Rachel to kick us off. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me, and thank you to the organizers, and I'm, this is exciting and very fun to be a part of it, partially because, as an archaeologist, we're not always asked what we think about the future. We're not always asked what our discipline can contribute to conversations about the future, and I think that we should be, because I think that what archaeology can do that other social sciences can't always do is sheer depth of time. If you're talking to an economist or a political science or a scientists or some sort of historian, they may talk to you about hundreds of years, possibly a thousand. I can talk to you about thousands, 10,000 years of, of prehistory. And we may not have quite the same sort of refinement of, of our knowledge into that prehistory, but the, the depth of, of knowledge and the breadth of knowledge that we can bring to the stage I think is really exciting. So in this particular case, let me give you some taste of where I work and why I might have something to say about climate change. My area of, of research specifically is the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, which you can see here indicated by that red arrow. It's actually the area that sort of surrounds Yellowstone National Park. It includes Yellowstone National Park as well. It's an extremely mountainous ecosystem, and specifically what I've ended up doing a lot of my research on is, is mountain archaeology, high-altitude people in the Rocky Mountains. And a lot of this, this area is actually above... Oh, it's not wanting to go forward. Oh, there we go. It's actually above um, 10,000 10, feet in elevation, 3,000 meters in elevation, extremely high elevation country. And 
in that area, we have ice melting that, is been, that is melting for the first time in the last 10,000 years. And it's not just the glaciers. You hear often about the loss of glacial ice from mountain contexts, and that's certainly happening. But the ice that's in glaciers, especially in mountain glaciers, tends to be quite young. And it, it'll be maybe 400 years old. And that's because as a glacier is forming and as it sort of cycles through its lifespan, it gets snow on top, the snow melts out on the bottom, it flows and moves, and the ice doesn't maintain, that same ice doesn't maintain, it's actually cycling through. On the other hand, ice patches like the one that you're seeing in this image can be 8,000 years old. The ice itself can be 8,000 years old, which is very exciting. It gives us an opportunity. There's a paleobiological record in there. There's a record of paleoclimate in there that we, can, that we can start to get at. And we're beginning to do things like coring this high-altitude ice in the same way that the core of the ice in Greenland or in Antarctica and, and get some sense of reconstructing specific paleoclimates. And because we can get better at reconstructing specific paleoclimates, we can also get better at understanding through prehistory how the people who lived in this environment, and there were people who lived in this environment for 10,000 years, and we can understand better how they were reacting to the climate change that was surrounding them almost constantly through prehistory. Now these ice patches as they're melting are also melting out artifacts. And this is one of my particular specialties. It's it's sort of a tiny silver lining of climate change, I guess. Um, it's not great. We still would rather it weren't happening. But as these ice patches are melting, because it's such old ice, when people lost things in that ice thousands of years ago, um, it's been in a freezer. It's been on ice for, for extended periods of time. And these include artifacts from all over the world, some of which, of which you're seeing here. Leather artifacts, basketry. Um, Utzi, the ice man who was found in the ice between Austria and, and Italy, he's a, a great example of this. He's the most famous example of this. Again, these materials are not coming out of glaciers per se, because glaciers churn, so they're not going to preserve artifacts very well, but these are coming out of high altitude ice. And they give us a better, a better idea also of the kinds of activities that people were undertaking in these mountain environments, which is pretty exciting to find. And generally speaking, archaeology is a, what we call a stones and bones game, right? We don't get to find much other than stones and bones. So anytime we're finding leather and basketry, and, and these, the, the items on the top of this slide are actually um, barbed projectile points from, from the Arctic, which are incredible. And we get so excited about finding things like this. And then the oldest artifact that's been found in this kind of context anywhere in the world is actually from where I work in Montana. It's a 10,000-year-old dart shaft, which is amazing. I mean, to find a 10,000-year-old wooden artifact that's this well-preserved, it actually has ownership markings on one end, so somebody marked it so that they knew if they were hunting with someone else who had killed this particular animal, which is pretty, a pretty amazing insight into, into the past. And again, gives us also this, this wonderful evidence that I mean, it's, again, it's not a wonderful thing that the ice is melting, but this is pretty clear evidence that this ice is melting for the first time, independent of all the other evidence we have about climate change. If these materials had melted out a lot in the past, they wouldn't have preserved. So we can say pretty solidly that this is the first time that they're melting out. So to speak to, speak to all of this, climate change is, is happening now as it never has before. And yet it did happened before. Um, during the Holocene, during the past 10,000 years, the climate changed repeatedly in, throughout the world, in, sometimes in relatively major ways. Um, would get a lot hotter and drier, would get a lot colder and wetter. There were big ice ages, there were little ice ages throughout that time period. And specifically in North America, the, the people that I work with had to respond to that change pretty immediately because when you're living in the mountains especially, it's a pretty extreme environment already you're kind of living on the edge, if you will. And so if it gets much colder than it already is, you're going to feel that. And it's really going to cause you to probably have to change your behavior in order to adapt to that new circumstance. And specifically, I want to talk briefly about a time period called the Altothermal, which was a hot and dry time period in North America from about 7,500 to about 5,500 years ago. And that, it was extremely warm and dry. And during that time period, we have evidence that the human population overall was down. There were fewer people. They were struggling to adapt to this new environment. However, those fewer people were actually making more extensive use of the high country. They were moving up into the mountains. We have a lot more sites in the mountains from that time period, 
which makes a lot of sense. If you're living down on the plains or in the intermontane basins, and it's, it's hot and it's dry down there, and the animals are also finding it hot and dry, so they're moving up because of some of that snow I was showing you. It's a slow-release watering system. It's always green under those banks of snow. And so those animals are moving up. The people are following them and hunting more extensively in the high altitudes. And that ultimately brings me to this diagram that you see here. And it's actually from the Smithsonian. And it's meant to sort of more broadly illustrate that as climates and environments change, which is what you're seeing over there under the environment heading, any species has to either move, it has to become more versatile, or it's going to go extinct. And versatility is obviously an extremely broad category. But what we see often of, and, and I'm going to take this and, and talk about this in terms of, of human populations, because what we see often in the past is that human populations would move during periods of extreme climatic duress. During the last glacial maximum 20,000 years ago, people moved toward the equator, away from the expanding ice at the poles. During periods of drought, people would move closer to, to aquatic resources, to water um, as best they could. That's a little more complicated for us today, the idea of just moving and, and making it better. Um, so we can't necessarily do the sorts of solutions that people did in the past. And when you think about versatility, the people that I study, again, they would develop a new technology for more effective hunting, or they would start to exploit uh, a resource that they hadn't previously exploited during a period when the climate was stressing them out. So they might get better at, let's say, gathering white bark pine nuts or do more of that when they hadn't done it before. And I think what, I, what I'd like you to take away from all of this is if we are going to survive or thrive in this new environment that we have created, we really can't do the same things exactly that people did in the past, but we can learn from that to become more technologically versatile. We can learn to become more culturally versatile, as they had to do to survive the changes that they already, our ancestors already survived. So you can probably hear from my accent that I'm American, and so much of the rhetoric in the current American election um, is, <laughs> is all about cultural rigidity. It's all about sort of fear of change and this idea of, of something inflexible that America is and theoretically was, although I'm not sure when that was, and, and this idea that it should again become that. And I think that feeling of, of inflexibility is something that potentially some people felt was part of the Brexit debate as well, this sort of um, fear of change, if you will. And I think if we are going to move into the future, if we learn anything, from what we've seen from how people, our ancestors, have survived climatic shifts of the past, the answer is change. The answer is versatility. The answer, in our case, I think, is going to be extreme versatility. This is more climate change than we've ever seen before, so we are going to have to be more versatile than we have ever been before. Um, and I think that's where I'd like to leave you. Thank you very much. I love the idea of the marked up arrow. That's like the paleontological equivalent of clay pigeon shooting, isn't it? You can <laughs> yeah. see who took it down. Please welcome Doug Crawford-Brown, who is from the Cambridge Centre for Climate Change um, Mitigation Research. That's the one, isn't it? Doug. Right, oh boy, another American. I'll, I'll, I'll link it up with Brexit, see if you can get the illusion here. On the 24th of June, my wife and I received our British passports. European Union at the top. I think the, the shortest-lived passports ever. I think. Okay. Um, right, okay. So did this just advance, or did I advance it? Or Okay, let's leave it there. It doesn't matter. Um, right, I, I'm going to talk about climate change. I'm, I'm going to put it in an economic context. Now, I'm actually a physicist, even worse, a theoretical physicist, um, but I've been directing a center that primarily looks at the economics of, of climate change. This is the way in which we've been thinking about climate change at the various Conference of the Parties meetings. So, um, oh, see, this is advancing some for some reason. Um, just a second. I, I hope, I, I may have a time on there for some bizarre reason. I'll, I'll just watch it. Um, so, just... Truth in lending, I was part of the U.S. climate negotiating team forever and, and ever. I'm not anymore because, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm British now. <laughs> uh, 
And I would be part of our climate negotiating team if we actually still had DEC in, in place. That's the only political message I'll make. When I first started going to the meetings, which was in Rio in 1992, um, climate change was discussed entirely in terms of the upper left-hand corner, which is it's all policies are all about reducing carbon dioxide and other emissions. You didn't talk about anything else other than that. Okay? Now, what's happened over time is we've started to move clockwise around this di diagram that you see here. And so now what's happened is we, we no longer just talk about reducing carbon dioxide, which I'll just use as the, the one gas here. We also talk about reducing the concentration by pulling it back out of the atmosphere with trees, artificial trees, and so forth. And then as we realized that we still were not going to hit any of the climate targets, we started to talk about reducing temperature in terms of, of geoclimate engineering and so forth. We don't really talk about that very much now. But what's happened in the last five or six years is we've begun to focus equally on the blue, the green, and the yellow, which is the yellow is adaptation. Let the climate change. Well, don't let it. It's going to change. Then adapt to it. So if this building is going to have more flooding, well, let's either lift this building up, let's stop the water from coming into this room, and so forth, right? So in the early days, it was all, let's stop emissions. Now it's easily 50-50, stopping emissions, but also dealing with adaptation. This is a quote, so I'm on the, the Climate Change Risk Assessment Committee. Every four years or so, three years, we do a, a climate change risk assessment to figure out where we ought to be directing our adaptation uh, resources. This is going to be my topic for today. Just a, a, a brief reading of that. There is no UK-wide assessment quantifying indirect macroeconomic effects of climate risk. Now, what I mean by that is a direct effect is there was a flood, you lost your house, you've gotten money from insurance or something like that, that's a direct effect. The indirect effect is you've lost your house, you don't have the money to go buy a 50-inch plasma screen television from John Lewis, okay? So the employees of John Lewis don't make as much money, so they don't go to Amy, Jamie Oliver's for lunch, so Jamie Oliver's suffers and so forth. These are the economic echoes that occur when something happens. And at the moment, we don't have a good understanding of how that occurs in the UK or in any place in the world at the moment. And we certainly don't know how it has an impact around the world. Because you may remember the flooding that occurs, the storms that occurred in Thailand about a decade ago, which shut down global computer production because most of the hard drives were passing through Thailand. That's a very indirect effect. The storm occurred in Thailand, but the effects were felt in every economy in the world. This is a, a graph. Don't pay any attention to the numbers here. That doesn't matter. The yellowish part, if that's what it is, that's the amount of indirect damage that occurs after a storm or a flooding event or a heat wave or something of a given magnitude. The blue is the direct impacts. And so what we know is that the indirect impacts, which we currently don't estimate very well, are at least as large as the direct impacts. And that's becoming increasingly important because, number one, our infrastructure is now incredibly interdependent. Right? Our power system depends on the IT working properly. Our water system depends on the power system working properly and so forth. And our economies, because of globalization of the economies, the economies are also connected quite strongly. Now, how do we deal with that then as we move towards the end? If we want to allocate resources for adaptation, what we use in the UK and around the world is a macroeconomic model like this. This kind of model simply says that if you do this in the agriculture sector, here's what happens in manufacturing and so forth. So the question is, if you are going to have to allocate resources and what you're interested in is economic impact. Now, that's, I'm not about to preach that that's the, the only or even the most important impact. If you're going to look at economic impact, impact, then the question is, how can you use such models to begin to understand where your economy is most vulnerable to both the direct and the indirect effects? So this was a study that we did in London. It looked at simulating various storm events that have occurred in London in the past, and then looking at the economic damage. And the height of a bar here, the, the x-axis is economic sector. Don't worry about which one is which. You can see them listed there. The height of the bar says how much of the damage to the economy came from 
not from damage to that sector, but damage in other sectors that influence that sector. And so the way in which we use this is to say that if we're going to allocate out resources to uh, deal with adaptation in a place like London, take care of your transport system, take care of utilities, take care of hotels and catering. Finance sector doesn't show up very strongly here because there's a lot of redundancy in the finance sector, as I think under Brexit we're going to learn. If it doesn't work in London, you just move it off to Frankfurt or New York City. And then finally... Adaptation is about collective action. Now, this thing's almost impossible to read. It's impossible for me to read it. But the left-hand column shows you various actors in a watershed called the Wissy Watershed up near, near Norwich. Okay? These are homeowners, farmers, insurance agents, and so forth. On the right-hand side, the, the right-hand column is aims. What do these groups want? out of, out of a, uh, an adaptation strategy? Do they want protection of water quality, protection of water quantity, ability to grow crops, and so forth? And so collective action is a problem where multiple actors have got to come together in order to solve a problem. None of them can solve it by themselves, but the problem that we have is we don't have finance and governance structures to deal with this. Right now, everybody just assumes, well, look, it's Anglian Water's problem, or it's Cambridge City Council's problem. Well, no, it's not. It's the farmer's problem. It's the homeowner's problem. It's the insurance agent's problem. Each of them should be putting something on the table. So we'll get into some questions and answers in just a bit. That's just the way in which, at least at 4CMR and at the Climate Change Risk Assessment Group, we look at this issue of allocating out resources for adaptation. That's all I'll say. Thank you, Doug. I love the way, actually, Doug, that your slide, which showed the economic impacts of a heat wave, was by Pant et al. <laughs> Nominative determinism at work, isn't it? Please welcome Barbara Bodenhorn. We're going to find out. Hello. Um, you know I'm a social anthropologist. I've worked up in the Arctic since 1980. I've worked in Mexico since 2004, and I've worked in East Anglia for the last four years. I never give up on a place. I just add things. What, the, what I'm going to, this, my starting point, first of all, is if anything is really going to happen to the ways in which human beings respond to the radical shifts that are going on in our environment, we've got to be connecting with the youngest group of people we can talk to and go up from there. We just have to be. So um, I don't get it. There are, there are lots of debates right now about, about whether we should be looking at mitigation or adaptation and people take positions. I think we need to be thinking, drawing on every possible tool we can possibly imagine. Now, with that, one of my colleagues is from Siberia, who's Eveni herself, works with Eveni reindeer herders, is working in a place where extreme events happen about every 15 minutes. You know, you see mountains literally collapsing. You see f waters erupting from underneath the surface. You see ice melting. They can never know what's going to happen between 9 o'clock in the morning and 2 o'clock in the afternoon. What they say that they most want to teach their children is flexibility. It's how to cope with unexpected and unfamiliar events without panicking. Now, partly what, the, what I'm going to be talking to you guys about in terms of these projects that we've had um, is how what we're trying to do is help young people start to think about how they react to the world around them with flexi flexibility. So that's, that's the intention. A couple years ago, um, I was in a classroom in Petersfield talking with some kids. They were getting ready to have um, a video Skype meet with some kids in Mexico. And so I said, so what connects you guys? And one of the kids said, huh, the sun? And I thought, yes. And another kiddo said, uh, how about the globe itself? And I thought, we've got it. Yeah. Now, of course, they also said Minecraft <laughs> yeah, and soccer 
And certainly one of the teachers in Mexico knows way more about English football than I do. Yeah? So, so what connects is very, very strong. Uh, so this map that I have for you guys is what um, meteorologists call the conveyor belt. And it shows you the, the current of water that changes from hot and cold as it moves through the world. And this current of water proves or shows you why it is that even though New York is considerably south of London, that London is warmer. Because by the time this current gets to you guys, it's red. I don't know whether I can do this. I don't even, I can't even see, but you can see where London is. It's the edge, it's exactly where red turns to blue. Now the shape of the current is really driven by the Greenlandic ice sheet, which is melting by tons of tons of water almost on a daily basis. If this current of water is, changes its direction because of melting ice, London may no longer be colder than, I mean warmer than New York, we don't know which is exactly why within climatology people talk about global warming because the overall temperature is rising and climate change because the fact of global warming doesn't tell you what it's going to look like in your front yard. Yeah. Um, now where I work in Alaska, which is really, 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 it's in Barrow, it's the topmost, you're looking out across the Arctic Ocean to the North Pole. It's the northernmost permanent community on the North American continent. The ice is melting rapidly, the coast is eroding rapidly, there are huge impacts on animals and on humans. Um, it is also changing faster than practically any other place in the world. It is certainly changing, it's pr practically the only place in Alaska that is not um, in a drought. It's raining and it's snowing, so precipitation has has gained. Now the other global system is the jet stream. Fires that happen in, in Montana, where Rachel comes from, will put ashes into the atmosphere, will be carried by the jet stream and drop onto the Greenlandic ice sheet. And excavate nasty holes of gunk which, which accelerates the rate at which that, that ice is melting. So what, how we understand the conjunction of these systems of water and of air is absolutely crucial. Okay, but if you're talking about how do we talk with children about this, it's obviously, it's very difficult to see, you know? I mean, you can talk about the maps, but it's very different. So one of our starting points is that environment is the stuff that's around you. <coughs> environment is, and it includes everything. It includes going to the grocery store, and it includes what your parents do or your mother does for a living. It's everything. And it's something that you can kind of grapple with. So what, where we wanted to start was with what kids knew about their own environment, about their own surrounding, how they understood it, and then to give them the opportunity to expand that, and then give them the opportunity to think about how that might, the same systems might generate different effects in different places, and what they thought the so what of that was. So ultimately, we also asked them to imagine what they thought life would be like in 50 years' time. I had, well, we have two, I seem to have missed one of the projects. One project was with adolescents that started in 2006, where uh, Mexican kids went up to Alaska for a month, lived with Inupiat families, worked with elders, w with the Inupiat kids. The next year, the Inupiat kids would come down to Mexico, to Ixlan, and do the same thing. So it was a physical exchange that was very, very intensive living where what they were doing was being encouraged to work with people who understood their environment from completely very, very different angles. This project Pathways is with fifth graders, it's primary schools, and obviously you're not gonna take 70 
10-year-olds physically across the world to get them to talk with other people. I lost probably 10 years of my life every year. I tried to do it with 17-year-olds. So I'm not going to do it with 10-year-olds. 10-year-olds are amazing. Yeah, They're so hungry. They don't have those adolescent filters saying, are you asking me or are you telling me? They're not, they're not worried about looking math in front of their mates. So they're just open. I've never had so much fun as working with these kids. Now, what you see is a classroom of Mexican fifth graders holding up a football shirt that has been signed by every single one of the kids in Soham that they talk to on Skype and with whom they then exchange letters. So it's just that that's an interchange that doesn't involve movement. But so what did we do? We walked. We asked kids to identify what places were important to them. We identified some of those places where we could actually get to. Then the children guided us there and talked to us as we were going. This is the Camino Real in Oaxaca. It's historically important. It's the middle of a cloud forest, which is one of the most amazing um, echo zones within Mexico. And it's very, very vulnerable because uh, Cloud forest gets a significant portion of its moisture from clouds that you can see how steep this landscape is. The clouds just skim through and the, and the leaves sort of gather their moisture from the clouds. Yeah, the clouds now are moving, are because of the changes in the air currents, they're sort of rising. So the trees are under stress. So we walk. Here are muddy roads in East Anglia. The kids seem to love the mud more than they loved any other kind of walking. And on the North Slope, we walked on beaches. And here, one of the, one of the guides um, is actually suggesting to one of the kids that he smell a dead walrus. I wouldn't recommend it, but we were trying to do sense around. We were trying to get students to really be aware that their observation is not just through their eyes. It's what they hear, it's what they smell, it's what they taste. So we were doing this. And then we were getting them to, to interact with different kinds of scientists, getting them to do different sorts of things. Um, first, you have to do the peel the seal before you cook the seal. I've changed species, but you get the, the idea. But of course, then also here, we had archaeologists come and work with the kids. This was in, in the Weatherall School and so on. And then we tried to, to really foster a sense of how you communicate what you've learned. And so in every single one of the schools, at the end of the year, they had kind of performances where they would, would gather. In this particular place, these kids, each student actually had identified a medicinal plant that they wanted to learn more about, and then gave a little presentation to the school as to what the plant was, the scientific name, the Spanish name, how you, where you found it, how you prepared it, how you used it, and what you needed to watch out for. Okay, so with every activity, you may think, hmm, I thought this was about climate change. With every activity, we asked the students to think about how climate might be part of the experience. So it's a, about climate as part of an environmental or an ecological consideration. And they talked about the challenges, and then they were asked to imagine what 50 years might bring. Now this picture actually shows you um, a number of things. The little tiny white cup that you see in the corner, in the right-hand corner, is actually a time capsule. So one of the things that the students did was to draw pictures of what they thought their surroundings would look like in 50 years, and they um, folded them up in, in these little plaster cups, and this is a replica, and then buried them. What you, the photograph that you see on the left-hand corner is an ice cellar up in Barrow. Ice cellars are the technology for preserving food, but they are also almost, to coin a phrase, the canary in the mine, because ice cellars show immediately the effects of climate change. I, I'm really, this is my last slide. Um, so they show the effects of climate change because they may fill with gases, they may fill with water, they may melt, you may not be able to use them. Um, and if you can't 
use an ice cellar, you don't have the means for preserving your hunted meat over the course of a winter, so it becomes very difficult. This quite lovely structure in the front was an artist's replication of a project that she did with children in the woods. Whereas the pictures that they drew and put in their time capsules were pictures that imagine a future in which their surroundings are simply built up. They were all about development and houses. What the artist did, what, whose name was also Rachel, what the artist did was to go into the woods with the kids and give them a scenario of an extreme event and say, okay, so electricity's gone, it's flooded, here you are, what are you gonna do? And they made, they figured out how to work together to create shelters, how to get to how to get together to figure out where there was water, how to get together to figure out how they were going to stay warm. They loved it. For me, since the the pictures of the future, which are all about being built up and losing all your greenery, this experiment in the woods is the experiment about flexibility and resilience and creativity and innovation, and so it gives me hope. Now, the, the last thing, I'm sorry, 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 <laughs> but I really want this, I think this is really important. I'm sorry, it, it, teachers get dissed all the time. They get dissed here, they get dissed in Alaska, and they get dissed in Mexico, and they're fabulous, we need to, we need to appreciate them. Okay, we're going to invite everyone to, to come and sit at the front. If, Al, if uh, Barbara and Rachel and Doug could come and sit down here. We're going to bring a microphone to you. Who would like to be... Have we got a microphone roving person? Who would like to carry our mic round? Gentleman at the back. Could someone come and come bring my microphone for me? While they just arrange themselves, and uh, when we do this, please keep your hands up all the time because then I can see who wants to ask a question and I will then indicate once I've sort of logged you. Are you ready to go? Gentlemen at the back, are you, ready? are you good? Excellent. Um, just a, a thought, because I noticed that none of the speakers mentioned the P word. Would anyone like to guess what I mean by the P word? Well, Paris is a good guess, but it wasn't what I had in mind. Population. Does anyone know what the world population is now, we think? About 7.2 billion. Now, when I first started making radio programmes, it was the year 1999. And I remember going on that programme, it was the autumn of 1999, and there was a big story in New Scientist that week, which I took into the radio to talk about, and it said, today, the six billionth person has been born on Earth. And now, in just the scope of you know, my career, not very long ago, we're at 7.2 billion. And how many were on Earth from the day that I was born? Which is what we usually, we call it um, A-Doug, A-D. Yeah. <laughs> How many? 2.4 billion. And there you I go. always ask my students that. First they just for a joke say, 100 people? <laughs> when you had your first brontosaurus, Doug. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but the point is, if you ask someone how fast is the human population growing, do you know what the growth rate is? What percentage rate would you estimate? It's about 1% per year. Now, let's face it, if you got 1% interest per year on your bank balance at the moment, you'd be bloody delighted, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, but the reality is that 1% per year, if you do the compound interest formula, so you do 101 over 100 to the power of X, where X is the number of years, if you actually calculate that, that 1% growth equates to a doubling of the number of people on Earth every 75 years. So if we go business as usual with the current rate of population growth and nothing mitigates it, there will be twice as many people on Earth. And Doug will tell you better than I can what the rate of resources consumption we are running at is and that that just can't be sustained. We also live in all the best bits of Earth at the moment. We avoid the nasty bits because we haven't had to colonise the bad bits because there are nice bits to live in nice productive bits that have predictable rainfall, warm temperatures, nice soil, it's not saline contaminated so crops grow there. When there are twice as many people around we will have to live in those places. 
it's going to become an issue. And maybe that's something we could talk about. Who would like to ask the first question for our panellists? Okay, let's start with the gentleman over here. Can you just say your name when you start, please, and, uh, and then frame your question? And I will ask the panellists, please keep your answers to a minute or so or less, please, just so we can get through as many questions as possible. Hi, uh, Stefan Dixon. And a question primarily for Doug. Um, why has the approach changed from focusing on emissions in, in the top left of the slide to adaptability? Is it because we can't do, or that the world has given up on trying to deal with the problem? Or is it, from your perspective, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, I think it's a good thing that we've started to focus on various parts, because as was mentioned, all, all approaches have to be taken. Um, one of the reasons that it's changed is that engineers have become much more part of the discussion at these Conference of the Parties meetings. And they've begun to bring a bit of reality in in terms of how rapidly we can do the things on the mitigation side. Um, so just a, a 10 second example, if we want to hit the renewable energy targets that we've set in the, in the world at the moment, we have to build a 100 megawatt, that's a big solar farm, every 20 minutes in the world. Every 20 minutes. We don't have anywhere near the engineering capacity to deliver that right now. So we've started to move towards the idea that, well, we'll have to, climate is going to change, we're going to have to adapt. That was probably 61 seconds. Uh, how, many, how many power outlets, stations, etc., are we building? Because we've heard China say, say in the past, I'm not sure how true this figure is, that that's going to be a coal-fired power station on a weekly basis. India have indicated they have a huge energy deficit coming and they need to build lots of power, power stations. What, what is the number in terms of just generating capacity, Doug? Well, we're currently producing about one-tenth the number that we would need to meet the energy gap unless we close the energy gap by changing lifestyles and so forth. I closed it and reduced my carbon footprint by 60% on the 7th of March, 2008. Any idea what happened? Did you go vegetarian? That, no, that, that's only 15%. That's the time in my passport that I migrated here to the UK. Same quality of life I had in the United States, 60% less carbon dioxide. So well done, whatever it is you've been doing. <laughs> and how do you account for that? What, why are well, Americans more profligate with their carbon dioxide? Sorry, I don't, this is not the Doug show. <laughs> no, you're just an easy okay. target. I, I, I drove a car in the United States. I don't drive a car here in Cambridge. We just, my wife and I just have bicycles. We lived in a, and I, I'm almost ashamed to say this now, a 450 square meter or 4,500 square foot house. Okay, we live in a 1,100 square foot place here in Cambridge. Okay, we don't need air conditioning here. Now that's not a fair comparison. In Chapel Hill, North Carolina, if you don't have air conditioning, you will die in the summertime. <laughs> you will die. But no, no more about me. <laughs> There's a question down the front here. Yes, and, and if anyone would like to follow up with another question, just give me a wave now, because then we can prime... Right, OK, I've got the gentleman at the back there. We haven't had any ladies yet. Let's have a lady... OK, we'll have that lady after this gentleman here, and then we'll come to this gentleman. Um, this on. James Williams, uh, just another American, so to contribute to the voice. Um, but as an American, a lot with of times... With a climate conscience or a, CO, a big CO2 footprint? <laughs> Sorry? With a climate conscience? Uh, or are you obviously. I you're otherwise, therapy. I wouldn't be here. You're in therapy for that. <laughs> yeah. um, but part of the sad reality of our sort of political discussion um, is a lot of climate change denial. Um, and one of the arguments that I hear quite frequently is that climate has changed in the past, and so, you know, it's okay if it changes again. And so my question is primarily for Rachel. Um, you showed us obviously a chart of how much it's changed throughout history, um, but how different is the scale of climate change today from what we've seen in the past, um, just in terms of absolute numbers? Something. Oh, it's working. Great. Um, absolutely. And, it's, and it has changed in the past, and that's something that I hear all the time, and it's something that actually I felt comfortable with this audience sort of making my silver linings joke about our ice patch finds, but I often don't do that because I don't want people to think that I think it's a good thing or that I think that this is, that this is somehow redeemable or somehow something that's, that's good. 
Um, and I were also asked a lot when, when I talk to sort of press people about my research about exactly that question. Okay, so the climate changed in the past, so why, why are we all up in arms about now? And the first thing I would say is just sheer rate of change is extraordinary right now. And it's, and it's not something that we have seen in the past, except occasionally, potentially, during periods when a volcano erupted. And you had, you had ash clouds that caused extraordinary sudden, you know, sudden sort of winters. But that's, that's obviously, if, if the analogy that I can use is an, a volcano erupting, that's not great. That's not great. For where for where we're at right now in terms of something being being human caused, and when you think again about the especially the artifacts that we have that are melting out of the ice and the paleobiological material that's melting out of the ice, it's some of these materials would have potentially melted out occasionally before or maybe a little bit before, but when we've got ten thousand year old artifacts melting out again, that suggests that this is ice that has literally been there for ten thousand years. So even if you don't talk about rate of change, when you talk about the, the sort of uh, the magnitude of change at this moment, we have some pretty solid empirical evidence that that magnitude is greater than it has been, at the very least throughout the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years. Does that answer your question? Thanks, Rachel. There's a question, the lady at the back. Yeah. Hi, my name's Nadia. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion on why you think like so many people, especially my age, just don't seem to care about climate change, even in a place like Cambridge, like we're surrounded by intelligent people, but the sort of level of well, engagement... Allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> the level of that engagement that I've experienced here is like very, very low, and people are often quite sort of, I don't know, you get a lot of stick for sort of doing, getting engaged with these issues. What do you think, Barbara? That's certainly one of the things that came out of, of the work that we did was that, that these 10-year-olds are very, very engaged, but by the time you're talking to conservationists, they say they can't get young people engaged for love nor money. Now, um, it's very, very different in both Mexico and Alaska, you know, and partly it's that these young people's parents actually live off of what's going on around them, and so they're much more aware. But I, I don't have a magic answer to that. I just think that we all have to... No, I'm going to say something else. It's because I, I started here in 1990, so I've got several generations of students in my brain, and there do seem to be waves of apathy to be followed by waves of activism. So the fact that young people seem not to care this minute, which I find desperately sad, um, doesn't mean that in five years' time there won't be a kind of a solidarity move. Yeah, I'd like to also mention that there's a longitudinal study that's gone on in the West um, primarily um, ever since I was born, having to do with high school students every five years. And if you plot how much students know about the environment versus time, it's gone up like this. If you plot how much they care about the environment, it's gone up like this. If you plot how much impact they have on the environment, it's gone up like this indicating a, a, a rather big disconnect between what we care about, what we know, and the reality of the lives that we lead. This lady here. Um, I'm sorry, because I'm, for my ignorance, but would you mind just expanding a bit on the answer Rachel gave about the sort of, the metaphor or the, the, the allusion to the volcano erupting? You've spoken a bit about the rate of ice melting. Could, could you talk about anything else that that you're aware of that you've seen in your work or in peers' work? Absolutely. So there, there are several points during, during the evolution of humanity <laughs> where you have had major volcanic eruptions in various parts of the world. And depending partially on some of what Barbara was talking about with jet streams and things like that, those, those clouds of ash will then be carried into, into other parts of the world and then you might suddenly... And generally what that does is then make it really cold for a while. And... and that potentially has had a role to play actually in, in several moments in human evolution and in several pretty major moments in throughout throughout human prehistory. Yeah. The 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 ice that we're working with to, to go to speak to the ice melting portion. The ice that we're working with is really interesting because it's small. It started out, you know, it's it, these are quite small ice patches. This is not like the the giant sort of 
ice sheets that you have in Greenland or in Antarctica. And that means that they respond to climate in a way that's different as well. They're not creating their own sort of microclimate around and above them. And so these smaller patches of ice are potentially much more sensitive to prehistoric climate change. So when we talk about the fact that, again, these are probably melting for the first time in the last 10,000 years, had it gotten really hot and dry, uh, hot and dry enough at previous periods, we would have expected these small patches of ice to melt more rapidly, to respond more rapidly to that change than some of the giant glaciers or the giant ice caps. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. There's a gentleman over here, far yeah. away. Uh, thank you. The, um, on the, I'd like to ask the panel about this debate on mitigation versus prevention. The uh, current world policy, Paris Conference, etc. Uh, it was predicated on having a two degrees C maximum increase in uh, global uh, climate, uh, global temperature levels. Are we now saying that we're going to miss this target and therefore the threshold of doom is upon us? Um, or conversely, what is the capacity of mitigation technology to uh, ameliorate doom? Doug? Well, Back when we had the last meeting in, not, not the most recent one, but the, the last time we were in Japan, uh, I think you may remember that we came close to changing to a three degrees C temperature target because we didn't feel that we were going to stay below the two degrees C. What's been interesting is at the Paris one, people began to talk about the 1.5 degrees C. I certainly, when I look at the data, I don't see any chance we're staying below 1.5 degrees C. I mean, we could. Um, I don't see much of a chance we'll stay below two. I'm starting to see some indication that things might be turning us over to stay below three or so. So I, so I, th I think there has been a sense that, that first off, number one, we, God, I hope the science is wrong. <laughs> you know, I, that's the only thing that doesn't, that lets me sleep at night is that maybe as scientists we're just totally wrong about this. I don't think we are, and I think if we're wrong, we're probably wrong in, the, in, a, in a bad direction. Um, uh, but we do see now efforts that, that seem to be turning us downwards, let's put it that way, in emissions. Could I just add something, though? In the Paris Agreement that was signed did not mention the Arctic. It doesn't appear once. The Arctic is a planetary driver, right? The reason that the Arctic doesn't appear I would suggest is that every single nation state that circles the Arctic cannot wait until the ice um, sheet melts so that they can start to mine what they think is underneath the ocean floor. As until we somehow get to grips with this, it doesn't make any difference whether we're going to go up to two or three. It just, we're not going to be able to, it, it just seems to me that sometimes what we're doing is, is focusing our attention in the wrong direction because until the political will shifts and the business will shifts, we're in trouble. There's a gentleman at the back there. Hello, my name's Peter Stockton. Um, it's about population. Why is population growing? Because in, in many parts of the world, it's not, particularly Europe. Um, there, are, there are famines as well, which could be seen as limits on population, but the population still continues to grow. What I suppose we, we could also add to this, what on? do we think the estimates for world population will be? And we used to think that by 2050 there would be 9 billion of us. This was recently upscaled because we had underestimated what we think Africa will do to perhaps as high as 12 billion by mid-century because the population explosion in Africa had been dramatically underestimated. That may be a worst-case scenario, but what does everyone think about the population story? Let's start with Rachel, first of all. Well, I am not as familiar as the, as the ghost of climate change past over here. Um, I am not as familiar with some of the, with some of the future proge projections as some of these other folks will be, but my comment on population, and I was thinking this when we were talking about it earlier too, is in the past, during periods of population pressure, unfortunately those are also moments when humanity has not always behaved itself especially well. Um, you, there are arguments that can be made about, about the appearance of violence on various places all over the world having a lot of correlation with population pressure. And there's great examples of this potentially in the southwest of the US, etc. And, and I think you know what I was talking about in terms of, of moving toward versatility, there's 
if you're talking about, about species and adaptation, there's actually a moment when violence can be an, an adaptation. And it's certainly, hopefully, not the direction that we would go, but I think it's potentially another moment when the past can sort of caution us about, about what, what population pressure often looks like in, in the past, and it's not always an especially pretty picture. So that's not an answer to your question at all. But it was just <laughs> the thought that I wanted to share on the subject of population. And for the actual answer, we can turn over here. <laughs> and um, Barbara, what do you oh, think? Well, I've actually Go got a question for Doug. Um, <laughs> you're, you're not allowed to avoid answering the question we're at, we're out of control by, by passing the buck. I, so, Barbara, it, what do you think about the population question first? With the question for Doug. The, what, it seems to me in a lot of the estimations of the growth of population, there is some form of assumption that there's kind of a steady state increase. Now, water, the conjunction of water and climate as water that either there's way too much of it and you're flooded to bits or there's nowhere near enough of it is going to be a limiting factor. War is a limiting factor. Epidemics that are going to be increasingly, all these sorts of extreme events, it seems to me, are pretty quickly gonna start kind of bringing in what I would consider to be limiting factors. So I don't know, and this is my question to you because I'm not a demographer, is to what extent as we are trying to imagine what me, might be happening over the next 50 yeah. years are these factors that, that involve the death of millions of people. I mean, this is the, oh yeah, well this has happened before, it might happen again. Generally speaking, when it's happened before, you have rather a lot of mortality, mm -hmm. yeah? so. That's my question to you. Yes, yeah, so actually, I'll, I'll combine the answer with the, the answer to the question up here. Um, uh, we, the, we do take into account the, these sorts of pressures. The, the, the issue that's arisen is that um, how bad those pressures are, how, how well your population responds in terms of declining when a disaster hits, depends a lot on your state of economic development, and these countries are going through economic development, and therefore these pressures become less and less significant to them. I'll give you, in answer to your question, I'll give you uh, the, 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 the following comedy routine, which takes place every time at the conference of the party meetings. Everybody there knows that total amount of emissions is equal to emissions per person times size of your population. So I'm going to make this up. I turn to China and I say you've got too many people. China turns to the U.S. and says, no, 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 it's not a people problem, it's, it's a per capita problem. Okay? And this goes back and forth between the two groups. Now what is the answer? The answer is both of them. If we don't get population under control, that's it. You know? but, but that's it not just for climate change, it's it for a lot of stuff. So population is central. We know that what got us to where we are right now in terms of CO2 is the developed world. We know that what will get us past the two degrees C mark is entirely dependent on what happens in the developing nations right now. We could stop all emissions from the Annex One countries today and all we would do is postpone the two degree time period by four years. It's all about what happens in the developing world. But the minute you start that conversation, then people begin that battle back and forth. Don't point the finger at me. I am not wealthy, and even though I have a lot of population, I'm not producing much CO2 per person. Yes. And the opposite. Yeah. So, yeah. We've probably got time for about two more questions. So I think there's one already lined up up the back there, and then this gentleman in the middle of the audience here is ready to go. Have you got a microphone, sir? No, can, can we, so have you got someone at the back there, or not? Yep, so would you like to go, that lady there, and then we'll take the gentleman here who's been very patient as well. Yes. Hi, um, I'm Cecilia. Um, my question was, we've talked, well, you've talked a lot about the um, shifts in climate over the years, um, in reference to the, obviously, the one that's happening now, but my question was whether the fact that the current climate change is primarily due to us and our behaviour and, you know, the choices that we've made, um, whether that makes it worse and perhaps more permanent than a natural shift that obviously occurs naturally and has happened in the past thousands of years. So yeah, whether it's much more permanent and um, worse, given that we're the ones that have created this change. I Who think would you like to answer that? Everybody. Everybody. <laughs> okay. Rachel? 
I, I think for starters, the, the first answer is, is though we can look to the past for especially some of these drastic climate shifts in the past, um, and, and how, how different ecological systems, how the weather system, how everything reacted to that, this is different. The, the magnitude is different. The direction of it is different in terms of it getting this, this warm. Um, again, it has potentially been warmer than at various points back and forth, but, but the, the quantity of heat and, and the changes, the actual changes to the atmosphere that are occurring are, are not things that have happened before. And, and it would take some extraordinary changes to Earth's biome, you know, extraordinary opportunities to, to get rid of a bunch of carbon and all that sort of thing in order. So I don't, I don't know that permanent is necessarily a word, but it's, it certainly would take an extraordinary shift to, to turn it back, if you will. Yeah. I am hopeful that it is humans. Uh, that actually makes me more hopeful than thinking that, well, it has something to do with solar cycles or whatever, because good luck, Parliament, legislating against sunspots, okay? Parliament can legislate that I can't have my house at 25 degrees C in the wintertime, as my son would. He's not here, so he can't defend himself, as, as my son would be doing otherwise. I, I, I don't think it's, it makes it more irreversible that humans are doing it. I think, in fact, it makes it more reversible that we're, that we're doing it. Maybe just thinking for a minute that if you, if, I, I think the number is roughly right, about 35 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide per year, give or take, Doug. Is that about, yeah, about right? You mean in the world. Can, can you imagine yeah. 35 billion tonnes just in front of you? Because when it's an invisible gas disappearing off into the atmosphere, people phone up our radio programme and they say, I don't understand how, how a gas can weigh anything. Because when it's in the air, it doesn't weigh anything. And so I say to them, well, when you put the fuel in your car, it weighed as much as a passenger. You burned it, and you combined it with oxygen from the atmosphere, and it turned into a waste gas and some heat, and you threw that gas out the exhaust pipe. It's made of the same atoms. It must have mass. It's just distributed in the atmosphere. And when you think 35 billion tonnes, that's a lot of mass. To get that back out of the atmosphere this year is a big problem, but what about the hundreds of years since the Industrial Revolution started and the CO2 composition of the atmosphere has gone up by 30-40% since then? It's a big problem, isn't it? We've got time for one more question. This gentleman here has been very patient. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's probably linked to a, a few of the speakers today. Um, in terms of, you mentioned globalisation and how the linkages between our society, you, you quoted the Thai chip um, incident. Um, do you see globalisation as more of a risk than a solution to the potential problems ahead in terms of indirect and direct consequences? I'm just thinking in terms of if you've got more isolated economic models and population things, one might survive and the other might not in terms of a natural selection type idea. Well, I don't know how people feel about Globalization, I mean, there's lots of, there's so many ways you can approach that question. Um, globalization, there's no doubt, has been bringing about rapid economic growth in the poorer areas of the world. And so you could say, you know, wonderful, because we've got three billion people living in poverty at levels that should never be allowed, and they deserve to come up out of that. But they then follow on a pathway which is problematic in terms of the amount of energy they consume and the CO2 they, they consume. Globalization has tended to bring very high energy consumption industrial practices with it. That's potentially problematic. And what it's done is it's shifted production from the developed world to the developing world. I would much rather have a refrigerator produced here in the UK than in India because in India they're going to take the same fuel and they're going to burn it with about 20% less efficiency than we have here. So produce about 20% more more CO2. But again, at the Conference of Parties meetings, very justifiably, India says, but we deserve to grow economically. Don't you sit here in Cambridge and lecture us about <laughs> whether we ought to grow or not. So I don't know, globalization just has so many more issues as attached to it that I almost don't want to step into that quagmire. <laughs> going to bring Doug, did anyone turn around to India and say, but the rest of the world didn't put a billion people in India? You did that. Not you personally, you obviously. Mean, 
<laughs> I've only visited three times, by the way. Okay, so, <laughs> and I remember you, Doug, almost every minute of it. Okay? Have you have you seen the film The Delivery Man? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a guy who found he fathered about 500 kids. Yeah. He was a very prolific sperm donor. But I'm not <laughs> suggesting for a minute. But. Well, you're. I mean, you're. you're issue that you raise here is exactly, again, the way these conference and parties meetings work. That, that's the way it would be phrased. You're the one having all the kids. Oh, no, but, but, but you're the one producing more CO2 per person. Yeah, but you're having all those kids. Yeah, and it never gets beyond that. You'd like to think it's more than eighth graders going at each other with, I think of it as, as blind men with chainsaws going at each other. Okay? It's about the sophistication of the, of the argument back and forth. Well, on That's that note, <laughs> we have actually run out of time. I'm sure these fine panellists won't mind if you come and talk to them afterwards. But please join me very much in saying a very big thank you to Doug Crawford-Brown, Barbara Gordon-Horn, and Rachel Rockham.